0: And so if there were not sin, there would be no difficulty, there would be no need for mercy. But because we live in a sinful and fallen world and because others sin against us, we are in great need of the compassion of God upon us and we are in great need of demonstrating that compassion because that's the second part of what true mercy is. It is not only a heart of compassion upon those who are suffering for their own sin or suffering because of the sins of others or the sins of our fallen world. It is also a willingness, and an actual working to help.
1: Hello and welcome again to Grace Merrillville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text.
0: Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and if you'll stand, we'll be reading the Beatitudes once again, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and I pray that as you read through these, you will be considering whether or not you have been living in this manner. If you are a member of the kingdom, then this this is your blessed reward, beginning now, certainly culminating in heaven, but uh, even now we are to be, as members of the kingdom, we are to be experiencing these blessed realities. So consider that as we read again Matthew chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, in nearly every adventure story, there comes a time when the hero squares off against the villain in some sort of battle, and usually the villain is confident in his ability and approaches the hero with uh, arrogance and confidence. The hero, being confident that he is right, engages in the battle and it usually comes a time then within that battle where the, where the villain, some, somehow he ends up on the on the worst ends, end of things, and the hero has him at his mercy, we call it. And what happens? Well, then the villain at that point, confident before and arrogant and sure that he would win at the point where it appears that he has been bested, what does he plead for? He pleads for mercy. And why does he plead for mercy? Well, he's been stripped of his own abilities, right? And at that point, He desires or he decides all of a sudden that he could use a good dose of mercy rather than perhaps the justice that is about to be administered to him or could be administered to him by the hero. Well, we have a tendency to think that justice ought to be given to others and mercy ought to be given to us. And in fact, it is also our tendency that we don't give mercy or desire mercy until we recognize and understand our own need of it. Until we are stripped of our own abilities, stripped of our own self-righteousness, stripped of our own uh, self-sufficiency. You see, we can often be quick to anger with others, swift to bring their punishment, but slow to be angry with ourselves and lenient in consequences. What we really need is a godly mercy that understands the righteousness and reality of suffering for sin, yet longs to see others rightly comforted and relieved from the dreadful consequences of sin and death and hell. So what we'll see this morning is that every citizen of the kingdom is a grateful recipient of God's mercy and loves to see others rescued from the suffering and affliction that are caused by sin. Again, every citizen of the kingdom is a grateful recipient of God's mercy and loves to see others rescued from the suffering and affliction that are caused by sin. In our text, remember the Beatitudes that we have already studied. Begin by looking at verse 4. Or, excuse me, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It is necessary for us to be humble, for us to recognize our bankruptcy to recognize that we have nothing to offer in the eyes of a holy God, that we must humble ourselves underneath him. The second beatitude in verse four, blessed are those who mourn. That attitude of humility, of recognizing our bankruptcy, causes us to mourn over our sin, to recognize that it grieves a holy God. And instead of delighting in it, instead of using it really as our means of sufficiency, we abandon our sin and our our clinging to our own self-righteousness. We mourn over it and we turn to God. The third beatitude that we have discussed is blessed verse five, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. It is the humbling of our own will, the willingness to have ourselves controlled by God to take his yoke upon us and then to act within his control, within his will, instead of exerting our own, instead of trying to to assert our will to gain the territory and the things that we desire. Instead, we humble ourselves underneath the Lord, we, we enable Him, we allow Him to guide and direct us so that His will becomes paramount for us. That is what it means to be gentle, to exert the proper amount of godly force in the will of God to accomplish the work of God. And so all of these are building, poor in spirit, and we mourn over sin, and we humble ourselves, we're, we're, we're gentle are gentle in our approach to others, and we, we, our will is controlled by the will of God. And really, as this happens, then we have a hunger and thirst for righteousness that is ever increasing. And that's what we discussed last week. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we realize we don't have our own, we long to have that which God would give to us, and we pursue it, and we pursue it with everything we have, because we understand that, that His righteousness solves everything. That's what enables us to receive His love. That's what enables us to receive His mercy, as we will see. His righteousness is necessary for us to have a relationship with him. And then as we pursue righteousness, that sanctification, we are able to love him more. We're able to deepen in our relationship as well as minister to others. And so as as each of these beatitudes builds, we now come really each of these tends to be an internal characteristic, poor in spirit and mourning over sin, gentle, our wills controlled by the will of God, and then hungering and thirsting, and in our heart desire for righteousness. Well, now this has to have expression, and that's where we come. In our Beatitudes this morning, how will we express these internal heart attitudes that really are are the means of entrance into the kingdom as God changes our heart, and also are the means by which we live within the kingdom? Well, these will always flow out if they are real, if we are truly members of the kingdom. These first four Beatitudes will flow out in the fifth and really in the ones that follow. We will be merciful if we are poor in spirit, mourning over sin, gentle and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I would say this, to the extent that we are those things, that we cultivate those first four Beatitudes, to that extent we will have the ones that begin to, have, to show themselves in our lives in direct consequence. And the first of these that Matthew mentions that Jesus preached on was mercy. Again, looking in verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessedness is that joyful contentedness which flows from being the recipient of God's loving, kind, and unmerited favor. If we are these things, we are blessed. It demonstrates that we have been granted favor by God. And the more we exercise these characteristics, the more we experience the joyful contentedness that are a result of that blessedness. And it is our, really, it's our litmus test for, for our understanding and, and of and our enjoyment of living in the kingdom. Are you, are, you, are you experiencing, are you benefiting from this blessedness? Well, only as you are pursuing these things that are mentioned here. And this morning, as we consider mercy, let's first give it a definition. What does it mean? Because the world has one definition of mercy. God has another, and we need to understand his so that we don't, we don't misunderstand the very nature of the mercy that we're supposed to be living out. And as always, each of these things that we consider are tied to the character and nature of God in some way, his work, his character. Luke 6, 36, kind of reflecting this same beatitude, says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So we will find that our mercy, the mercy that we're supposed to live out, flows from God, it is empowered by him, and it's a reflection of God's mercy. So if I was going to give you a definition, just kind of at the outset, we'll then explore it a little bit, and then we'll put it in in pieces as to how we would live this out. But mercy is, this, this godly mercy, is the expression of love, which causes us to have compassion on and to actively help those who are suffering and afflicted, either due to their own sin or the sinfulness of the world we live in. What is mercy? It is the expression of love which causes us to have compassion on and to actively help those who are suffering and afflicted either due to their own sin or the sinfulness of the world we live in. Let's break that down into pieces. Mercy is the compassion or compassion on those who are afflicted and suffering. Really, it's an affection for those, a deep love for those who are miserable, who are having a difficult time. And that can come as a result of their own sin or it can come as a result of living in a sinful world. See, this is a true care and concern for the hurt and pain that others feel in their affliction. And we are slow to this. And certainly, we don't have any real measure of it apart from the grace of God. We don't understand pain and affliction unless we understand who God is, what he's done, our own character and nature. So the world can have echoes of this affection, echoes of this mercy, but they never understand it fully because they don't understand God. So this compassion on those who are afflicted and suffering, really, the primary reason that people suffer is because of their own sin. This suffering is caused by God's hatred of a sin and uh, hatred of sin and discipline and judgment of it. Consider Ephesians 2 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Fundamentally, even though we are not fully experiencing the results of our sinfulness now, that will one day happen if we don't know Christ. We will experience the fullness of misery and affliction in eternal hell. But now we are receiving the echoes of that. The wrath of God, his judgment upon sin is being poured out. And we experience that in our own lives. And we experience that. And and, then the world experiences that as, as a result of the world being cursed. And so our own sin, unworthiness, and unfaithfulness are what causes the greatest amount of our suffering. And yet God has mercy on us in that. God looks upon even that self-inflicted pain and misery and longs to make provision for it. That's an amazing thing because we wrestle to do that. When we think someone is deserving of the pain that they are in, we are slow to desire their deliverance from it. And we will flesh this out to understand the justice of God in this and and how that relates to his mercy. But we need to understand at the outset that God longs to deliver people from suffering. It is not his heart's desire to put them into it. He does not somehow rejoice and delight in the suffering itself, even as it is a necessary component of his righteous character. God is merciful. And he loves to deliver people from mercy, even when it is caused by their own sin, unworthiness, and unfaithfulness. So our compassion should be on, and God's compassion is on, those who are suffering because they brought it upon themselves. Also, there is a kind of suffering we are to have compassion on those who are afflicted and suffering due simply to the difficulties of life. But remember, there's no simply difficulties of life. Those are also caused by sin. There are not those kind of difficulties in hell. All right, there are no, there are not those kind of difficulties as it were, excuse me, there are not those difficulties in heaven where there is perfection. There is no difficulty at all. And so if there were not sin, there would be no difficulty, there would be no need for mercy. But because we live in a sinful and fallen world and because others sin against us, we are in great need of the compassion of God upon us and we are in great need of demonstrating that compassion because that's the second part of what true mercy is. It is not only a heart of compassion upon those who are suffering for their own sin or suffering because of the sins of others or the sins of our fallen world. It is also a willingness and an actual working to help those who are afflicted and suffering. So that's number two. It's not only compassion on those who are afflicted. It is also help to those who are afflicted and suffering. This is not just simply an emotion. It is also an action, as is so true of, of all of the characteristics of God. He doesn't just emote towards us. He then puts those emotions, those affections into action, and they are part and parcel of it. Mercy cannot simply be, well, I feel so bad for you. It is, I feel bad for you, and I'm going to fix it. That's how mercy works. It is active. And so mercy helps those who are afflicted and suffering. It is gracious, kind actions towards those who are afflicted in order to relieve that affliction and that suffering. This is, and God does this in several ways, and we are to consider this. We'll, we'll flesh this out more. But consider the fact that God keeps his promises even to people who are undeserving. That's part of his mercy. He could say, well, I'm done. No more promises for you. And I understand that there are conditional promises and, and that, you know, God often makes those kinds of, where he says, look, I promise this if you do this. But it's an amazing thing in Scripture. That even when men wrestle to accomplish the conditions of conditional promises, God is gracious to them and pours out his mercy upon them. And certainly he makes promises that he ties to his own merciful character so that they are always enacted. So keeping his promises is part of being a true help to those who are afflicted and suffering. Forgiveness to the sinful, unworthy, and unfaithful. And this is perhaps the primary demonstration of God's mercy is that he chooses to forgive. And in that forgiveness of sin, he then relieves them from the penalty of sin, because that's what forgiveness is, is to set aside the penalty. No longer are those who have been forgiven, no longer will they suffer eternity in hell, no longer will they come underneath the very consequences of the sin that they have committed. Titus 3 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He granted us forgiveness. As we will see, it is on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. It has its basis in justice and truth. And yet mercy is enacted upon those who are entirely undeserving, who brought the condition upon themselves. And yet God longs, and in his longing to relieve them from their misery, he does so by sending Christ, by bringing them to salvation, by forgiving them of their sins. He actually helps them. He does not simply wring his hands over their difficult condition. So, this help to those who are afflicted and suffering involves God keeping his promises, involves a forgiveness that he brings. And in that forgiveness, it involves a deliverance for the afflicted and for the needy. Sometimes it's temporal, where he, he, he delivers them from the circumstances that they face on just the temporal plane on earth. Right? And certainly, when mercy is fully enacted, it is eternal. It is an eternal deliverance. But consider Christ, even when he walked upon the earth, Matthew 20, 34. We've already seen many instances of it. But Matthew twenty thirty four, as Jesus comes across the, the blind men, it says, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. In, in this case, they, they follow after him. In this case, it seems that they believed in him. But certainly it is not in all cases that Jesus simply moved with compassion, brought his mercy to bear and delivered the afflicted and needy from the thing that was causing them such difficulty. To be blind in that day and age was essentially it's a death knell. You had to beg for the rest of your life. There weren't programs to help you out and do these things. And Jesus, in his compassion, says, I will, I will I will, deliver you from even that temporal affliction. All of these are bound up in the mercy of God. Yes, he delivers us eternally, those who are in Christ. And yet, even upon the unsaved, he has a measure of mercy in not bringing the fullness of his penalty to bear, and granting them a measure of, of relief, even upon this earth. This is the compassion of God this is how what our compassion is to mirror a compassion on those who are afflicted and suffering and a help to those and a help to those who are afflicted and suffering turn to Luke chapter 7 to see a, a just a beautiful picture of this in the life of Jesus there there are many we could just look at hundreds of them and we'll look at more of them as we move through the gospels but this one every time i read it every time i consider it i am moved by the compassion of Jesus in his in his mercy Right, that seems to be, a, 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 in this particular story, uh, temporal. He's, he's giving a blessing here to a woman and to her son. You're probably familiar with the story in Luke chapter 7, verse 13. Really, before that, verse 11. So soon afterwards, he went to the city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Now we know this isn't a chance encounter, and yet it's really written into the narrative kind of that way. Jesus isn't necessarily going to Nain uh, in any external way that he talked about, or that's mentioned in the text, to heal or to raise this young man from the dead. But that is what he does. And so it, it's almost presented as here is Jesus walking into the city. She is coming out. He just happens to arrive in the city at this moment, Where this woman who's been bereaved of everything, her husband is gone, she's a widow, her only son is gone, her only means of sustenance and provision, all of that is gone. And she is afflicted. She is suffering. She is weeping. And there's a huge crowd weeping along with her, maybe indicating something about her character, that she was one who was a blessing to others, we don't know. But certainly indicating the the tragic nature of her circumstance, they are weeping with her. No husband, no son. She's walking out of the city. And then, when the Lord saw her, verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. This is the heart of God, to relieve suffering and affliction. Jesus doesn't just walk by, oh, well, you know, people died all the time. There's another son who died. There's another widow. Lots of widows in Israel. And as he passes by her and sees her condition, he stops. He has compassion upon her. And that's the heart of mercy, truly affected by her condition, He doesn't have to make it up. He doesn't have to somehow generate it. He doesn't have to, you know, read a couple books on mercy and compassion to to get himself to the point where he wants to do this. It is his instantaneous, as it were, desire. It flows from his very heart. And as he sees her, he says to her, do not weep. Can you imagine? Why not? Can you imagine just the jarring nature of that to to that woman as as she's weeping or having lost everything? Jesus says, do not weep because he knows what he has in mind. Verse 14, and he came. And he touched the coffin and the bears came to a halt. I mean, he stops it. He, he grabs it so it can't go any further. And everybody stops. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Why did he do that? Doesn't say anything about her following him or the son following him or any of those things. He did that to relieve the misery and suffering of that woman that she would have faced for the rest of her life. Certainly it relieved the deadness of the young man. And our prayer is that he came to to know and to follow Christ after that. But our text doesn't say that. That is the heart of God. Verse 16, fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his prophet. But I wonder if maybe they were, and I'm sure, they were more amazed by the deliverance from death than they were by the compassion that drove that deliverance. And I think we often face the same problem. We love to see the greatness and power of God. But so often we do not see it as mirrored and really as prompted in the compassion and mercy that he has. And we oftentimes would revel in the power without necessarily reveling in the compassion and the mercy that God shows. Really, this mercy, in finishing out our definition, just if you want to write this in, is the opposite of God's wrath. You see, we deserve God's wrath, but in Christ, we receive instead His mercy. That is deliverance from the rightful punishment of our sin on the basis of the full payment provided by Christ. Because we are the recipients of this mercy, we are then required and really empowered to show God's mercy to others and not to take out our wrath on them. Well, now let's look at this next point, the need for mercy. I think this is already apparent to us, but I wanted to bring it out. Right? The definition of mercy being compassion for and help to those who are afflicted and suffering. And the need for mercy, well, mercy is necessary, number one, to enter the kingdom. All of these beatitudes have some relationship to getting into the kingdom. Some kind of attitude or action on the part of God so, so that we might enter in. Well, we certainly are in need of mercy. Scripture is abundantly clear that we deserve God's wrath. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. God rightfully pours out his wrath upon sin and would do so upon us unless he was merciful. So we deserve God's wrath, but we need his mercy. You see the difference there. We deserve the wrath. We're in desperate need of the mercy so that we might be saved from that wrath. It's a fascinating thing if you study the word mercy in the New Testament and really in the Old. What you find is there are several words that are used to translate it. And one of the words that is used to translate mercy is is a Greek word that is uh, related to the mercy seat. That is the place where the blood was sprinkled in the Old Testament sacrifices above the Ark so that God would see the blood and would forgive the sin. And it's a perfect translation of the word. That's the mercy seat. That's the place where we find the forgiveness of God, where he grants to us his mercy. He saves us from from the results of our sin, the suffering, the affliction that come as a result of sin. And so in Hebrews 9, 5, speaks of of this mercy seat. It says, above it, that is above the ark, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And, And it's translated, again, different word than we have in our text for mercy, but the concept is the same. That it is there, and it is by the blood of Christ in Hebrews, that we receive mercy because our sins have been forgiven. We are in desperate need. Exodus 25:20 20, 20 is the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, the word mercy is most often translated in the Old Testament when it is used in relationship to the mercy seat. It says, The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are turned towards the mercy seat. And that is what God has provided you in salvation. He has granted you his mercy, the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifices in light of or looking towards the sacrifice of Christ, and then the sprinkling of the blood of Christ cleansing us from our sin and relieving us from the misery and from the affliction eternally that we richly deserved. Instead, he pours out his mercy upon us, delivering us from that. You see, the mercy seat is so named because because it is the place where the mercy of God is clearly seen. We deserve wrath, but at that place where the blood of the lamb is sprinkled and then the blood of Christ himself on the basis of this sacrifice, he extends his mercy to us. He forgives our sins and thus he rescues us from misery and the pain of eternal hell. But what we must understand is that although although this is bounded in God's justice, it is driven by his merciful character. He did this because he loves to show mercy. He not, he's not, wasn't somehow bound to do it. There was nothing in us or, or in anything about God that forces him to somehow provide for us in this way, that forces him to forgive our sins. He does it because he is full of mercy and he longs to give it. And so thus he sent Christ. So mercy is needed for us to enter into the kingdom. If God does not in his mercy deliver us from the consequences of our own sin, then we must suffer it. And so mercy is really removing us from or not giving to us that which we deserve, the consequences of sin. But also, as with each of these beatitudes, mercy is necessary within the kingdom. It is necessary for us to enter into it, but also the mercy, and really the primary emphasis in our text, is blessed are the merciful, that is those who, because they have received mercy, then live out that mercy towards others in the kingdom. And we live out that mercy because we and others still sin and fail. Because within the kingdom sin remains, because within the kingdom as we live here on earth, there is, there is the, the ravages, there are the ravages of sin, so we are in need of pouring out mercy upon others, and we are in need of that mercy ourselves, both from others on the human or horizontal plane and from God. We are in continual need of his granting us mercy daily because of our sinfulness. And also in the kingdom, we and others suffer from the difficulties of a sinful world, Until Christ returns to finalize his kingdom, we will suffer under the sins of others and the cruelty of a fallen world. Thus, there will be many opportunities to extend mercy in delivering others from this affliction, from their misery. And God is gracious to do that to us as well. Even in a temporal way, God is gracious to provide for us in the midst of our misery and affliction, to give us the strength to make it through, even when he doesn't remove from us the circumstance.
1: Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.